Open your Bibles, if you have them, to Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 25. Matthew chapter 6, verse 25 to 34 is where we'll be this morning. Matthew 6, 25 to 34. All of us deal with anxiety of some sort. Some of us may be more prone to it than, than others, but all of us will deal with it. It might be anxiety from work, it might be anxiety from co-workers or from friends, it might be anxieties in parenting, whatever it is. With others, there's anxieties that might have nothing to do with people. But You might have anxieties over how clean your house is, or you might have anxieties over how many germs are on your hands right at this very moment. Where's the Purell? You might have anxieties over how neatly pressed your children's clothes are, or many other things. Still others are worrying over things that we would all consider perfectly legitimate. Some are waiting on calls from the doctor. Some are waiting scans or results from scans that literally might mean life or death. The point is that there are worries that are constantly pinging around in our heads on a daily basis. And some of us will handle these worries in more of a type A fashion, with a type A kind of personality where all of our anxiety will be worn on our shirt sleeves and you can tell it when you look at us, we're constantly fretting and worrying. And others might handle it in more of a type B kind of personality where we take it as we come and we sort of swallow the anxiety and on the outside we're cool as a cucumber, but on the inside we're burning. And odds are, if you're married, and you're one of those, you're married to the other one. Most likely. But it doesn't matter who we are, anxiety of some kind affects everyone. This morning, Jesus is going to hone in on our anxiety, and He's going to give the most detailed explanation in Scripture, I think, as to why anxiety is dangerous and why it's a, a, a wrong way of thinking. Let's open our Bibles again to turn in our Scriptures to Matthew chapter 6, verse 25. We're going to read there. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than clothing, more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. 
Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. I think most of us can gather in even just one read-through of that text of Scripture that Jesus is attacking our anxieties that we feel on a daily basis. However, I think it would be a mistake to conclude just by reading that that there's nothing ever to rightly be anxious over or to have any sort of worry over. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 28 and 29, he says, And apart from, the, from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak? And I am not weak. Who is made to, fa- to fall? And I am not indignant. So he's basically saying there that there are things that cause him to be anxious, and rightly so. He, he is anxious over the success and failures of the people in the churches that he has been planting and sharing the gospel with. And so he, he has some anxiety over those things. So in our passage this morning, it's right, I think, to understand that Jesus is slapping us in the face because of our anxiety or the pressures that we feel over our anxiety. But it would be wrong to conclude that he's, he's countering that with sort of the, uh, the uh, inner Bob Marley approach. Right? He's not channeling his inner Bob Marley and prescribing the, just the, the kind of carefree lifestyle, the don't worry, be happy, every little thing is going to be all right. That's not exactly what Jesus is saying. If you are the type of person that lives that kind of Bob Marley, carefree lifestyle, please understand that that way of living has warnings to it as well. And Jesus in other places will come after you. He's not advocating that everyone just be a little bit more like you. There are legitimate cares. I think as verse 34 points out, there are cares that the day brings, anxieties that the day brings, pressures that the day rightly brings, things that would provoke us to action. But even though that's pretty normal for the citizen of the kingdom of heaven, Jesus is advocating a trust in Him. That these kinds of anxieties that come up from day to day are pretty normal things to expect for a citizen of the kingdom of God traveling in a far country. That's how the Bible depicts us. Citizen of the kingdom of God traveling in the far country. There are anxieties that come with that. Now, with that warning in mind, in the text that we're looking at this morning, it has an interesting shape to it. Jesus begins the text and ends the text with the same command. Do not be anxious. And he reiterates that command throughout this entire passage. And he commands an alternative way of living that should characterize the the citizen of the kingdom of heaven. So at the heart of this passage are seven arguments as to why you should not worry. There are six times where Jesus uses the word anxious in this passage, and three of those occur in the phrase, do not be anxious. So it's apparent as to what the main point of this text is. I don't even have to tell you what the main point of this text is, because you already know it. Don't be anxious. So instead of spending my time on the main point, I'm going to spend my time on the seven supporting arguments for why you shouldn't be anxious, which is what Jesus does in this text. So there's going to be seven points to this sermon, all right? So we're going to go fast through them. So you're going to have to write a lot, save some space, okay? The first first argument that Jesus makes as to why we shouldn't be anxious is that life is more than food and water. 
Life is more than food and water. Look at verse 25. He says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Last week I told you that this sermon is going to be an extension of last week's sermon. That today's passage is really an extension of last week's passage. Really one big unit altogether. And last week we saw that Jesus gave us three metaphors that serve to make the point that He states very clearly at the end of the passage in verse 24. He says, You cannot serve God and money. That's the point he gets to at the end of that little section. You cannot serve God and money. And the main question that we asked at the very end of that sermon, in fact, the title of the sermon, was who is your master? And I had hoped that when you were sitting in the pew, or maybe when you got out to the car, maybe as you were talking with your spouse, you are asking, who is our master? And I hope the conclusion that you got to was that God is my master. I can't serve God in money. I choose God. I, I'm, uh, God is my master. Now, assuming that that is the conclusion that you came to, was that Jesus or, or God is your master, we now go into the second half of the passage, which he begins with the connecting word, therefore. And that, of course, tells us that this argument that Jesus is making is built on the argument that preceded it. So the points of verses 25 and following are all built on the essential premise that you have chosen to serve God over money and material things. He says, therefore, the expected outcome of you serving God instead of money or material possessions is that you put away anxiety out of your life. You cannot serve God in money. Therefore, Put away anxiety. You don't worry about the material possessions. He says, don't be anxious about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. All of these things are material possessions that can be purchased with money, and they're all necessary for life. And, and, he, and then he gives the, the first reason that you don't worry. He, he doesn't say that those things aren't important. You notice that? He doesn't say that those things aren't important. He doesn't say those things are fleshly and icky. Blech! Water! Blech! Food! Yuck! Who likes that? That's all fleshly and icky. Put that away. That's more in line with Buddhism or Hinduism. That's not Christianity. That's not what he says. He says life is more than food. Life is, the body is more than clothing. In other words, it's not that food isn't important. It's just that there are more important things in life than food. Now, that defies all conventional wisdom. Food and water, to us, are the most important things in life, right? I mean, if you're lost in the woods, what are you going to look for? Your Bible? Or water and food and shelter. You're going to look for those things. Those are the most important things that we would get as we're on a journey in the woods. Of course, that's what we're going to do. Jesus' argument 
is that what God provides for you in righteousness, in wisdom and the like, is far more important than food. Life is more than food, and there are more important things for the body than clothing. And namely, I think what he is looking toward is the resurrection that is to come. In other words, if you were to have food, you were to have clothing, you were to have water, and you were to not have eternal life, and you were to burn in hell, what good would it be? Remember the argument has been you cannot serve God and money. And so Jesus' point is to raise the natural objections that you might have to that point. But Jesus, we need money. Jesus, we have to have things, money to buy food, to eat, and to live, and to drink. And so Jesus is preempting any of those objections to say service to God is primary. Righteousness that can only be found in God is primary. Again, he doesn't say the money is meaningless. He doesn't say, therefore, food is meaningless. No, they're just not primary. They're not as important as we make them, as fundamental to life as we consider food. He's saying unwavering and faithful devotion to God is more important. The second point that he makes as to why to rid ourselves of anxiety, he says, you are more valuable than other creatures for which God cares. You are more valuable than other creatures for which God cares. Look at verse 26. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you of not more value than they? Now, Jesus takes us to a picture of birds and their way of living. They live hand to mouth, or you might say beak to ground. That's how birds live, if you want to phrase it that way. They live beak to ground. And they don't have savings accounts. They don't have pantries to store food in. They, they certainly don't farm at all. They simply live off the day's rations. Yet they have what they need. Why? Because God feeds them. So Jesus here is not condemning saving. He's not condemning storing. And he's not arguing that we should really take up a lifestyle much like the birds. That we should just live like they do. That's not what he's advocating for. Never save a dime. As Martin Luther once said, God provides for the birds, but he does not drop the food into their beaks. They work. And so Jesus is not condemning work at all. He's actually saying it's good. It's a good thing that we do. What he's saying is that God's sovereignty over the universe is such that it even includes sovereignty over the precise location of the worm in the dirt that the raven feeds upon. His provision for the birds is in their work. He has given them the ability to work and to peck the ground, and He has provided for them success. That is in His sovereignty. So if the sovereignty of the Lord covers so much minutia as to govern even where the tiniest bird will find food, what will he do for you who are of, not, of more infinite value than they? The implication being that the anxiety that you have over the things that you need is really to doubt in the Lord's provision, to doubt in the Lord's sovereignty, to doubt that He loves you. 
and that he cares for you and that he provides for you. The third thing he says, you can't change anything by worry. You can't change anything by worry. Look at verse 27. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Jesus' words literally here is, can add a single cubit to his life. Now, you know, as well as I do, cubit is not a unit of time, it's a unit of measure. It's like saying an inch or a yard. Which of you, by worry, can add a single inch to his life? Now, we don't measure life in terms of inches or yards, nor do we measure it by cubits. We measure it in time. But Jesus uses a metaphor here a lot like we would use a milestone. A milestone isn't a marker for your age, but we use it like it is, like you're walking on a journey that you've encountered this milestone. Hey, you've reached the age of 40. That's a milestone. You're now over the hill, right? And then, well, well I'll stop there. Uh, the, the point is <laughs> that in spite of your worry, you haven't the ability to add one more marker on your journey. His point is that worry is futile. It changes nothing about the future. Now, I say that with full awareness, knowing that there are several people in this church body that are fighting for their lives at this very moment. And some of them are chewing their spiritual fingernails to, to paint a picture. At this very moment, waiting on calls from the doctor or waiting for the results of scans from tests and things like that. And these are grueling times. The blessing and curse of medicine, modern medicine, is, produces a lot of anxiety. Yeah. On the one hand, we know a lot about what is going on in our bodies. And on the other hand, we know a lot about what is going on in our bodies. When we can do something about it, well, it's wonderful. And when we can't, anxiety is incalculable. Because we just wait. And the doctors don't make it any better. They say to us, oh, I, got, I got really bad news. Come to my office in four months and we'll talk about it. And so then you just sit there for four months doing nothing but worry. Constantly. I want you to notice... Jesus does not say here, your life is meaningless, so don't worry. That's not what he says. I think he realizes the importance of life. Obviously he does. Because when he's faced with a death sentence, he has anxiety. So it's not as though he doesn't know what the anxiety of life feels like. Of course he does. He knows exactly what it feels like. He doesn't say, your life is meaningless. Don't worry. He's not trivializing life. He's trivializing worry. That it doesn't produce the desired outcome. It's not going to gain you any more milestones. It 
has no product. Fourth thing that he says. Your life is more permanent than other things God cares for. Your life is more permanent than other things God cares for. Look at verse 28 and all the way to 30. And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven... Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So similar to the birds that God feeds, Jesus turns our attention to the lilies of the field, or the flowers of the field, and his argument is slightly different than it is with the birds. The flowers, unlike the birds, they don't even really, they don't work at all. Flowers are lazy. They don't work at all for their clothing, and yet the Lord clothes them. God, in his creativity has fashioned for them clothes that surpass even the richest of kings. And so the argument then goes, if God does this for even the flowers, which are transient, they are here today and gone tomorrow, their life might be merely a day, how much more would He clothe you whose life is much longer and of more value? Now, I want to pause right here and answer an objection that is probably going on in the mind of some in this room. I know if I were sitting in the pew, this would be my objection. It would go something like this. Isn't it true that there are Christians in history that have died from starvation, from thirst, or from being unclothed or unsheltered? Jesus seems to be here advocating for just just trust in the Lord and that He will constantly provide for you. But aren't there times where people have died? There are surely birds that starve to death. Mama bird is swooping down to get a worm out of the ground and the neighborhood cat sneaks up from behind, takes out mama bird, and what happens to the babies in the nest? They die. Surely that's happened. I want you to follow the logic that Jesus uses here in this passage. We live in a world that's fallen due to sin, sin that we have partaken in. Though the world that God created was to be perfect, man rebelled against God, sinned against Him, our Creator, and as a result, sin came into the world. And, and then as a result of sin coming into the world, as judgment for that sin, God also subjected man and other things to death. So things now would die as a result of man's sin. So now we die. Now Jesus is not promising that if you're a Christian, that you'll never face the effects of the fall. Nor does he say, because God clothes the flowers of the field, they're never plucked up or thrown into the oven. Nor does he think it's logical to say, because they're plucked up and thrown into the oven, then that means that God didn't provide their clothing. He doesn't say that either. In the same way, there are times where people of the world birds of the air, flowers of the field are going to suffer even to the point of death. 
Well, what is he promising? He's promising that God, who even cares for the little animals and the flowers in the field, will give you exactly what you need when you need it. But but brothers and sisters, God alone is the one that determines what you need. As the provider for your needs, He knows exactly what you need. I would like to think that I know better what I need. But can I tell you something? If I were my own provider, here's what I would have given myself. Especially as a pastor of a church, I would have given myself the wisdom of an 80-year-old and the body of a 22-year-old forever. Forever. Uh, forever. I mean, doesn't that seem? That seems illogical to me. Why wouldn't you, Lord, if you're going to put a pastor in a pulpit, why wouldn't you want him to have the wisdom of an 80-year-old? Why stop there? 150-year-old. Wouldn't you want him to have that kind of wisdom and the body of a 22-year-old so you just keep going, never tire out, never stop? I'd never suffer, ever. Never suffer. I'd never have ailments. I'd, I'd never die. I'd never do that. Consider for a moment that there is a time in everyone's life where death is better for them than food. Where death is more important than water and clothing. And as difficult as it is for us to wrestle with that concept, death doesn't just occur. It is appointed. As the, he, as the author of Hebrews 9.27 tells us, it is appointed. What Jesus is pushing us toward is to trust that God is not ignorant of your needs. He knows them before you even ask Him and He knows better what you need than you do. He knows better what you need than you do. He also knows the things that you actually need that you would never ask for. Things that you could never bring yourself to utter. He knows what they are. Jesus isn't just saying here, well, you have a choice. You either... Either God provides for you, or you have the choice to worry about providing for yourself. That's not what he's saying. He's saying God is providing for you, as He provided for the flowers, as He provided for the birds. He is providing for you, at this moment, everything that you need. Stop kicking against His provision. He has provided for you in the past. 
And as he has provided for you in the past, so he will continue to provide for you in the future. Even the things that you don't know that you should ask for. Fifth thing that he says here, worrying is what pagans do. Worrying is what pagans do. Now he says Gentiles in the text, but we are Gentiles, so I changed it to the meaning, okay? Worrying is what, what pagans do. It says, verse 31, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Uh, so Jesus circles back to something uh, similar that he said earlier in the chapter. If you'll look back at verses 7 and 8 of this same chapter, of chapter 6, you'll see that Jesus warns uh, about the way the Gentiles pray. And he's, the way the pagans pray, he says, Do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. So he reiterates the same thing, the same kind of concept here. It seems as what he's pointing out in particular is the attitude that's present in the worrying, being like the attitude of the pagans when they pray. That you're panicking. You're wondering, when will your help come? The only alternative is to be thrown into despair, thinking that maybe God isn't listening to you. Or, or maybe that you, you simply need to do something to move Him to help you. Maybe I need to cut off food, or maybe I need to do, uh, maybe I need to do all kinds of different things. The pagans that we've seen in the previous passages, they begin trying to evoke their God with these fancy words and incantations. In the Old Testament, they even cut themselves and they sacrifice their children to the gods so that maybe they'll be stirred to hear them and respond. Jesus reiterates it. That's not the case with you. That God hears you. He knows exactly what you need. And He cares. So being, being thrown into an anxious state over God's seeming inactivity in your life is more pagan than Christian. The sixth thing that he says, today has enough trouble of its own. Look at verse 34. Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. I'm going to flip-flop the order of verses 34 and 33 here, because 33 has the contrast of all of this. So in verse 34, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Not only is there no way to change the course of tomorrow by worrying, but what are you actually doing by worrying about tomorrow? You're neglecting the, the things that require activity on your part today. The things that need to be done today. And I've mentioned this before, and I think it bears mentioning again that so much of our worry is about things over which God has not given you charge I've drawn the comparison before that we, we each work in our little garden. God has appointed us that garden. He hasn't appointed you the garden on the other side of the fence that we seem so worried about a lot of the times. He hasn't given you that garden. He's given you the garden that's at your feet. That's what He's given you charge over. So the balance of life that Jesus is laying out for us here is one where we're neither careless nor where we worry endlessly. Instead, we take life one day at a time, and only deal with the things over which we have the power to change. 
Now, underneath all of this is seeing that everything that comes our way is by divine sovereignty. And it will accomplish the purpose for which He sent it. Everything that comes our way is by divine sovereignty, and it will accomplish the purpose for which He sent it. It's incumbent on us, then, to understand these situations that produce anxiety as being brought our way for a divine purpose. All of those things are brought to us for a divine purpose, and all of it is ultimately for our good and for His glory. Friends, you understand, this is the root of the gospel message. That we understand that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to His purpose. We hang our hat on that verse in Romans 8. If you read Romans 8, it's all about suffering. Every last bit of it is about suffering. Then we look at the ultimate suffering that's around us and we're tempted to think everything is meaningless then. I just have to sit here and have to suffer for no reason. That's not the point that Paul gets to. He says, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to His purpose. What we hang our hat on is that we may not understand the reason we have what we have, or the reason He's brought these things into our life, we may not get that. What we can trust is that it's for our good and for His glory. We may not ever see the end of it now in this life. We may suffer needlessly, it seems, for all of our life, all the way up into the end, and we may not fully grasp the reason for it. But what he tells us is that those who love God and are called according to his purpose, all things work together for good. That doesn't mean you're going to get out of it in this life. It means that it's for your ultimate good. It means that he knows what's best for you. And he is going to bring that about in your life. It is a promise. Jesus does not say that these things aren't worthy of trouble. No, in fact, he says sufficient for the day is its own trouble. He expects there to be troubling situations, things that produce angst in your heart. But all of these things we turn over to the Lord, as 1 Peter 5-7 reminds us, casting all our anxieties, same word, on Him because He cares for you. The last thing that he says here, seventh thing, God's kingdom requires an unwavering dedication to righteousness. God's kingdom requires an unwavering dedication to righteousness. Look at verse 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. 
So in, instead of anxiety that is produced by the concerns of the material world, the child of God should be concerned primarily with holiness. That should keep us up at night. Those are the worries that we should have. When he says, seek the kingdom of God and His righteousness, what Jesus means is to pursue the kind of holiness that we've been talking about for the last two chapters in Matthew. A righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. A righteousness that doesn't come merely from from the body that wants to go through the motions of what it's like to be a Christian. But from the heart that's inwardly motivated toward being holy. Those are the desires we should have. We should be anxious over that. The kind of righteousness Jesus is commanding us to seek is the kind of righteousness that can only be brought about by someone guided by the Holy Spirit. The conviction of sin that is required, the turning of the man's heart towards this kind of righteousness that the Lord Lord desires is precisely the job of the Holy Spirit as Jesus tells it to us in John 16, 8. To convict the world in righteousness. Jesus says to make that your priority. That's your worry. That's what you're seeking after. Make that the thing that you worry about. Make that the thing that you strive towards. And all of the rest of the material things, God will take care of. God will provide. Jesus is not saying, shame on you, there's nothing to worry about. That's not what He's saying. No, He's saying... He's advocating for a superior worry. Something that captures your affections. In chapter 5, he calls it hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And when you're tempted to worry over other things, it's simply distracting you from a superior desire that he wants you to have. You've been presented with an opportunity to turn even the most difficult of circumstances over to the Father in faith. Refusing then to be distracted by fretting over things that God alone provides. Now, this is what it means to serve God over money. Is that this has become my chief worry. This has become my chief passion in pursuit is the maturity of my faith, that I grow in holiness, that I come to pursue righteousness more than anything, and entrust everything that I have to the care of my Father who will give me what I need when I need it. I want to illustrate Jesus' point in all of this and hopefully drive home the absurdity of anxiety with just a a little, just a, A picture, if you will. If you can just think with me on this. Imagine there was a little boy, about 10 years old. And he's born uh, into poverty. And his parents were poor. He was raised by beggars. He only ever knew a begging lifestyle. One day his parents both contract an incurable disease and they die, leaving him orphaned. And just before his father passed away, 
He calls his son to his bedside and he gives to him a piece of gold worth about $1,000. And he tells his son, Son, this is all I have. Now this is all you have. It's not enough to live lavishly. It's not enough to buy you food, but only for a little while. Only use it then in the most dire of circumstances. Don't use it unless there is literally nowhere else to turn. And so the boy takes the gold and he hides it in a safe place. The safest place he can possibly imagine. He puts it away, hides it there, safe and secure. And every day he goes back and he checks on this piece of gold that his father has given him to make sure that it's still in, a safe, in that safe place. And he continues a life of begging for food and water and shelter and never uses it. Then one day, the royal family is passing down the road and they see this orphan boy begging on the street. And they decide right then and there to adopt this child They put royal robes on him. They bring him into the palace. They give him a room. Every meal he eats is a feast. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner right there at his adopted father's table. He eats the finest foods. He's attended to by his father's servants. Now, let me ask you a question. Now that the orphan boy is adopted into the royal family... How much is the gold worth? A thousand dollars. It's worth the same amount before and after he was adopted. But let me ask you another question. Does he go back and check on the safe place where he left this coin? No. Does he worry every day that the coin is going to be taken? No. Why not? Because though the worth of the gold hasn't changed, its value has been surpassed by what he now has in the household of the king. The value of the coin has been surpassed by what he now has. He's no longer worried about those things. So Jesus, in only a way that he can, is not arguing that the things in this life are not of value And that they aren't worth our time and attention. But the feelings of anxiety that we have about them is tantamount to going back and checking to make sure that the gold we had as a pauper is still in the place where we left it. As a security blanket. We are under the king's care. We have his resources. We trust him to provide. You're worrying about things that you can't change. And it's not as though these things aren't valuable. Indeed, they are. But he tells us, cast those anxieties on me. Bring those anxieties 
to me. Entrust me with the things that concern you. Give me the security blankets. Entrust me with the things that concern you. Trust me that I will always do what's best for you. Isn't that what it means to believe in Christ? Isn't that what it means to trust in Christ? That we trust Him with all of our care, with everything that we've got. And even when the day comes where your life is over, He reiterates time and time again in the Scriptures, please understand, child of mine, that what you're leaving behind pales by comparison to what I have in store for you. Things that you can't see now. I am convinced. I've been teaching uh, the Scriptures since I was 15 and been in and out of ministry in churches and since I was 19, grew up in the church, and it's only been recently that I think I've, I've come to the conclusion that all of the teaching and all of the preaching and all of the worship is preparing us to die well. Every last bit of it. All of it is chiseling off the rough edges. All of the illness, all of the disease, all of the frustrating things that we go through, all of the trials, all of the hardships that we have together as a church, all of the trying to get along and work together, all of the sitting and listening to sermons, all of the repenting, all of the prayers, all of the All of the everything is preparing us to die well. That goes for students, it goes for college students, it goes for adults, young and old. Every single one of us studying the scriptures, reading the scriptures, listening to them preach, singing the songs that we sing. Is preparing us for that day where we're on our deathbed. That on that day we're singing praises to the Lord instead of cursing Him for making us this way. What a difference. It's all preparing us to die well. That we may glorify the Lord, bring others into His worship. Friends, the application that is given to us here by Jesus is very simple. Don't be anxious. But some of you may be saying, how? How can I possibly stop worrying? Well, if the text is any indication, worry is, in part, a normal condition of us being humans in a fallen world. And not all worry is bad worry, as we saw with Paul in 2 Corinthians. But I would ask you a couple of questions to analyze your anxiety. First, does your anxiety result in an inward monologue? Does your anxiety result in an inward monologue? Where you just, you go about, you're just talking about the issue with yourself in the car, hoping nobody catches you talking to yourself. You're you're batting back and forth 
all the, the possibilities, all the things that you're thinking about, and all the, well, if they say this, then I'll say this, or, or, or well, if this happens, then this is what I'll do, and, you, and it all just results in an inward monologue and a bunch of gray hair. I would challenge you to, to consider Peter's command in 1 Peter 5, 7, which is one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture, casting your anxieties on him, for he cares for you. Turn your monologue into dialogue, in other words. Instead of just batting it around between the walls of your car, turn it to the Lord. Paul tells the Roman church in Romans 1, 9, and 10 that he prays ceaselessly for them. Do you think that that's connected to his worry for the church, that he prays ceaselessly? He worries ceaselessly, so he prays ceaselessly? I think it is. Second, does your anxiety result in endless worry with no relief? Is it just, just constantly endless worry and you don't ever stop worrying about it? It's just you wake up and you've got that same worry and you go throughout the entire day with that same worry and then you go to bed and you've got that same worry. I would suggest to you that this is sin. Seek first God's righteousness and what that means is to confess that is sin. For you to understand maybe for the first time in your life this thing that I'm worried about is actually combating or battling against my desire for righteousness. I can't even think about desiring righteousness right now because I'm so consumed with this worry. Understand that is sin. Turn it over to Him. Confess it in prayer. And His promise is to forgive you. Now, there may be no final escape from anxiety while we live in this fallen world, but if you're a son or a daughter of the king, then your father has all the resources of heaven at his disposal. Ask him for what you need and trust that he will provide what you need. So the question is, if indeed you are a servant of the living God, why are you worried? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, We worry, and we confess that to you. Our worry many, 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 many times goes beyond the bounds of normal and into sin, where we not only worry, but we fail to trust that you will provide for it. So many in our church right at this very moment Are worried thinking about all of the possibilities that are going to come in the future not knowing what it holds Lord we pray for them you know each one of them better than we do you know them and so we pray for them for those that are sick we pray Lord that you would heal them and we trust that in the end you know better than we do how to handle those situations. But Lord, all of us have worries that we deal with on a daily basis. And we pray that it would drive us to our knees. Lord, if that's the result that we as individual Christians and as a corporate body become a church that loves and is dedicated to prayer, 
then give us lots of worry. If that's the result. Beyond all things, Lord, I pray that we would turn it over to you. And that we would truly learn to cast our anxiety on you because you do care for us. In Jesus' name, amen.